Children can be dismissed to Children's Church if they'd like to go. The last few weeks, Pastor Jeff had a number of statements for us to cling to. He said, keep your eyes focused on Jesus. He said, worship God. And then last week, the focus was to God be the glory. I think it's only fitting that we continue in these right admonitions, not just this week, but into eternity, that we give God the glory. And uh, with that in mind, I've spent a few, well, a few hours reading and going over the church constitution recently, and I, I thought it was interesting. It says this, it says the objective of this church, Montana Avenue Baptist Church, is to function as a New Testament local assembly glorifying God. That is our purpose as a church, is to glorify God. And if you spent much time here, you probably know how we do that. There's really four things that we do as a church, or four aspects of how we glorify God. And our church constitution does go on to say this. The first one is through meaningful fellowship. We have fellowship with one another. We make it meaningful. We spend a lot of time together, and that's the only way that we can grow close together is by spending time with one another. Authentic worship. We focus on the Lord. We focus on Jesus Christ. We focus on the Holy Spirit, and we worship all three. For a third, we are biblically based in all of our teaching. Everything that we do comes and focuses in, on, and around the Word of God because that's how God has revealed Himself to us. And then fourth, we have Christ-centered outreach. All right, When we proclaim the good news of, well, the good news, it is focused on Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. That is what we do. And so... If our goal as a church, as people, is to glorify God, then we should have this as the focus of everything that is on our mind when we come together to worship as the body of Christ. We should have this thought of glorifying God every time we wake up in the morning, every time that we go to sleep at night. Our focus, our goal is to glorify God. And so I started to think about that. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean when we use the word glory? Sometimes we might read our Bibles and we come across the word and we go, that's kind of just one of those Bible words and nobody ever knows what it means until somebody hits a grand slam in the sixth inning of the World Series, right? Then we know what glory is. Frustrated with the Astros right now, so help me, Lord. Uh, (laughs) It's a good game last night, though. We, We... I don't know who said that, but, uh, you know, I'm not a national fan, but they haven't won since 1924 in Washington, D.C., so I'm cheering for the Nationals. All right, uh, I think we have an idea of what glory is when we see it, or when the Olympics come, or when the Super Bowl's going on. We, We know, we understand glory in these various aspects, but what does it look like when it calls us to glorify God, or when it makes the declaration that God is glory. 
Well, the first thing I want to point out is that glory is seen. God's glory is seen. We see it a number of ways. And first of all, we see it through creation. We see God's glory through creation. I'll just give you a heads up right now. We're going to look at a lot of different passages this morning, okay? So some of them you're going to be able to go to, and some I'm just going to read to you. But we've got a lot of passages because I want to have a biblical foundation from Genesis to Revelation of what the Word of God says about God's glory and also about how we are to glorify God in our lives. And the first place that we see this in is in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why did he do that? He did that so that he could get glory. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 108, verse 5 says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? So that they would glorify Him. And all of creation does that. All of creation glorifies God. One more passage, I didn't put it up there, but Isaiah 6, 3. When he had his vision of the Lord on his throne and he was trembling, falling apart. And the angel said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The earth was created to glorify God. Number two, God's glory is seen through his image. That comes in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created man in his image so that we might glorify Him. Now think about that for a second. Image. What is God doing when He makes man in His image? Why do we have George Washington on the quarter and the dollar bill? Why do we have Abraham Lincoln on the penny and the five dollar bill? Is it because the, the, the value of those things are a lot smaller and so we wanted to uh, draw a little bit of attention and show their insignificance? No, no. That's, that's not why. We, we use quarters and, well, we used to use quarters and pennies a lot. We don't really use them that much anymore. Uh, dollars and $5 bills, they're on everything so that we can draw special attention to who they were and to what they did and we want to give honor to them. Why, how, why are... Uh, Abraham Lincoln and George Washington on Mount Rushmore. We use their image to declare something about them. They are great because of what they did. And our nation, we want to draw attention to who they are and what they did. One of the ways we do that is we put their likeness or their image on a quarter or a penny or on, so many, or on a mountain. We do these things to draw attention to what they did. You 
are made in the image of God so that he could draw attention to himself. Live worthy of the image that you are standing in. Isaiah 43.7 says, Everyone who, call, who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The reason that God created man in his image was for his glory. The problem is we've marred that image. It's not perfect. We've marred it with sin. And that happened in the garden. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. God's glory is seen through creation, through his image. Third, it is seen in brilliant light. Go ahead and turn with me to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. And I'll bet that most of you, when I hear the or when I say the word glory, you think of this passage in Exodus 33. And specifically, we're going to start in verse 18. I'm going to read all the way through 23. Exodus 33, 18 to 23. Moses has led the people out of Egypt. They've crossed the, the Red Sea. Moses is going up onto Mount Sinai, which has been burning with the fire of God. And he goes up to receive the tablets. He has a conversation with God, and here's what that conversation looked like. Verse 18, Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there was a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall, be, you shall see my back but my face you shall not see. I've often wondered what exactly was Moses thinking when he said, Lord, please show me your glory. It really is a bold request because in Exodus 24:16 it says, "Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel." All I can imagine is when Moses had his first encounter with God. Remember with the burning bush in Exodus 3? He had a glimpse of God's glory and he only wanted more. He was like a child who had just learned how to swim, and he pushed the limits going deeper into the waters of God's glory. Moses saw, Moses experienced, and Moses bathed in the glory of God that day, and it changed his life, making him zealous to give God glory with every single thing 
that he did. A couple things that I want to draw out of this particular passage in Exodus. First of all, God's glory is connected to his name. God's glory is connected to his name. Verse 19 says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and you, you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. There is a strong connection with the name of the Lord and the glory of God. Now we're going to come back and, and consider this a little bit more in detail in, in a few minutes, but understand that God's glory is connected to his name. Second, God's glory is demonstrated through his goodness, his grace, and his mercy. The moment of, Mo, excuse me, the salvation of Moses in that moment, the salvation of Israel from Egypt, and the salvation of God's people from sin is so that God can give glory to himself by demonstrating his goodness, his grace, and his mercy. God's glory is connected to all of these things. God's name, his goodness, his grace, and his mercy. Paul latched on to this idea in Romans 9. When he quoted this verse in Exodus 33, 19. And then he goes on in Romans 9, 16, and he says this. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God is totally independent, God is totally sovereign, and he has the freedom to choose whomever he will choose. That's the point that Moses is getting after as he records this in Exodus 33. That's the point that Paul is going after, is the sovereignty of God and how he demonstrates that sovereignty through his goodness, his grace, and his mercy. Later in Exodus 34, um, verses 29 and 30, Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Moses did not know that his skin, or that the skin of his face shone. It was bright, it was brilliant, it was glorious, right? Because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Isn't that great? Moses had an encounter with God. He had a conversation with God. He spoke to him face, by, face to face. God hit him in the cleft of the rock. He passed by. Moses was able to see his back. And as a result, his face was brilliant. And so he put his cover over his face. One for the people of Israel, but really, I think he did that for himself. He wanted to keep that glory that he had from that moment, that experience, so that it would not be lost. We see the glory of God demonstrated through light and brilliance a number of other ways. We won't look at them all, but in Leviticus 9, uh, when the dedication of the temple, or the tabernacle, and then later on in 1 Kings 8, the dedication of the temple, it tells us that the fire of the Lord came down, it consumed the sacrifice, and his glory filled the temple and the tabernacle. God's glory is seen through light. Next, God's glory is seen in Christ. God's glory is seen in Christ. Number one, he is the perfect image. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So that he could give glory to himself by perfectly reflecting the image of the invisible God. Now we people have marred this image, but Christ has perfected that image. He is the image of the invisible God. Second, Christ demonstrates the glory of God through his dwelling. Through his dwelling. Now this theme of the glory is all throughout the Gospel of John, but I'm just going to read two verses. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's saying, hey, we saw his glory. All the other disciples that were there, they saw his glory. The first place they saw that glory was in John 2, verse 11. Jesus did his first miracle. He turned the water into wine. And here's what it says in verse 11. This the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Jesus manifested his glory sometimes through miracles. And it tells us at the end of the verse, his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed because they saw the glory of God manifested in Jesus Christ. And the third way that Christ uh, reflects or reveals the glory of God is again with a bright light. You remember this, don't you? In Mark 9, 3, Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, John, and James, up on a mountain. And it tells us that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. This brilliant light. Well, that stuck with Peter because in 2 Peter 1, 17, he said, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, and here's what that voice said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Think about that for a second. Remember up on the mountain, uh, Peter, James, and John were there. It was the, the Festival of Tabernacles. And Peter, in his um, great ideas, he, he, he sees Jesus, he sees Moses, he sees Elijah, and he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Tell you what, guys, I'm going to build some tabernacles for, for all of us here. We're going to obey the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and then all of a sudden... A cloud swarmed him. And he said, Peter, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. Listen to him. Interpretation? Peter, shut your mouth. Stop talking and start listening. Why? Because the glory of God is being revealed, Peter, and you're missing it. Don't miss the glory of God as seen through Jesus Christ. 
Now, I want to zero in on this idea here, this next idea. God's glory is seen in salvation. I'm going to have a lot of terms here that I'm going to use, and I'm going to do my best to uh, uh, declare what each of these terms are. But go ahead and open in your Bibles now to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. And really, all of Ephesians 1 is dealing with this. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6, and Paul starts out this by giving blessing to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 5, he says this, He predestined us for adoption to himself. Let me say that again. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God predestined us, those who would trust in him. He is the one that predestined us, or he elected us would be a fair way to say it, he predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ. Well, why did he do that? So that he could get praise and glory for his grace. That is the purpose of predestination. Number two, God's glory is seen through the incarnation. You remember in Luke chapter 2, shepherds are watching their sheep at night, and as they're there, who knows, maybe there was a campfire, maybe there were a, a bunch of guys that were telling stories. We won't get into what those stories would have been, but you can imagine the, the, the good stories that are sort of true, but not really, but they're good stories, so why would, why would we let the truth interfere with a good story, right? And then all of a sudden, a bright light comes, and it tells us in verse 9, the glory of God was there with these angels in verse 14 says, the angel speaks and says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Christ came to save, and then a little bit later on, this is actually verse 14, and suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praying, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. God sent Jesus. He predestined his people. He did this to give himself glory. And he receives that glory through salvation. Giving salvation to his people. The response to the birth of the Savior was to give glory to God. Now these two words are together uh, because they're both in uh, Romans um, 3, 23 to 26. Propitiation and justification. Now what is propitiation? Propitiation means to satisfy wrath. You do something wrong to somebody, they're angry at you, and you've got to satisfy 
their anger, satisfy their wrath. You might do this through saying, I'm sorry, I apologize, I won't do it again. You might do it if you're in business, you might do that with a, a check. You satisfy their wrath or pay them somehow, whatever it is. Um, God is angry at sinners. They have broken his law and he has provided a propitiation to that wrath. Justification is a slightly different word. It means something uh, is right, or something is made right, justified right. And in fact, those words justification and righteousness, they're translated interchangeably throughout the Old and the New Testament. There's got to be a little bit of a background with this, though. In Romans 3, 23 through 26, and I want you to see this. In Romans 1... Actually, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you haven't with me. Romans 1. This is part of a larger section that's really condemning everyone because of sin. And it says this in verses 22 and 23. Romans 1, 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal or the immortal god for images resembling mortal man so here's the thing i want you to focus on that idea of exchanged the glory of the immortal god they exchanged the glory of the immortal god if you exchange something you no longer have the thing that you exchanged they exchanged god's glory for images of man. Now, in verse 20, in uh, Romans 3:23, says this: Most of you probably have it memorized. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Same phrase is used there: fall short, exchanged the glory of God. If you fall short, if you exchange something, you no longer have that something. You lack it. Here's what it's saying. All have sinned and lack the glory of God. Verses 24 through 26 go on and say this, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, here's the word, propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness or justice because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So man has exchanged the glory of God for something else. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, it, it, it tells us that he died. So first of all, he can be a propitiation or he could satisfy the wrath. It's verse 25. But then it says this, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Why did it have to say that? 
What does that mean? He passed over former sins? Yeah. In the Old Testament, remember? Somebody sinned, they could go and they could take a bull or, or a, a ram, or if they were really poor, they could go and they could take a, a dove or a pigeons or whatever. I forget all the different birds that they could sacrifice. Or they could have a grain offering, and, and they could make these sacrifices, and it tells us that it would make atonement for their sins. Here's the thing. God passed over those sins. We've got a problem at that moment. The problem is, let's put ourselves into a circumstance for just a second. If I had a child, and um, uh, let's put ourselves in, in the same context of King David. Remember King David? David was the king, and David uh, was out when he should have been out at war. And he was out on his rooftop, and he looked out, and he saw Bathsheba. And he wanted her, and he took her. And he got her pregnant. And then as a result of that, he thought, well, I've got to get out of here. Uh, I've got to get out of this situation. How can I do that? He calls Uriah. And he says, hey, come on home and spend some time with your wife. And he's hoping that he'll get her pregnant. And the story just goes from bad to worse. He won't be with his wife. And so David's got a big, big problem. And, and, and David, uh, finally, he, he comes to the conclusion, all right, well, this guy's got much more integrity than I do, so I'm just going to have him killed. And so what he does is he sends him back to Joab. Uh, Uriah goes to the front of the line, and Joab pulls back the army so that Uriah will be killed. It happens. David goes and he takes Bathsheba as his wife. And... David kind of starts to think, well, maybe people knew that Uriah came home. We won't count the months too closely. They'll think it's his baby, and that'll be the end of the story. No. Nathan came, and he confronted David. And he tells him the story. Remember, the, uh, uh, the, there was a man who had a sheep, and the rich man came along, and he took that sheep, and he killed him, and, and he had a festival, and he celebrated with his friends, and David was so angry at the sin. He said, that man's got to die. And Nathan looks in his face and he says, you're the man, David. You're the man. And David drops and he confesses his sin at that moment. You know what God did? God forgave him. Well, what if you're Uriah's dad? Is that going to sit well with you? The king took your son's wife, and he had your son killed, how is that just? How is that righteous? And so the book of Romans, the righteousness of God is at stake. And Jesus Christ had to come, he had to die for the sins of people so that God's righteousness would be seen. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's Romans 1.17. That is the point of the, gospel, or of the book of Romans is to reveal the righteousness of God. Christ had to die for the sins of people to show the righteousness of God, paying the price for the sins that God had previously passed over. And that's what Romans 3, 23 to 26 is getting after. 
God reveals his glory through propitiation and justification. This is all part of salvation. And then finally, all the shuns, transformation. Transformation. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we will, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, so right now we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Glory comes through the transformation, or I could even add another word, the sanctification of believers. Uh, One of my old teachers, uh, uh, Richard Mayhew, has put it this way, God is to us as the sun is to the moon. The sun is the exclusive sort of light. As the sun is the exclusive source of light, so God is the sole source of glory. The moon reflects light, so we, or as the moon reflects light, so we reflect God's glory. As we are transformed into his image, we reflect the glory of God. Not by our power or by our work or our own exertion, but by him and his ability to transform us day by day, moment by moment. In a very similar way, Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, he said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the question is, how do we do that? What do our good works look like so that we can give glory to our Father in heaven? That's what I want to spend the rest of our time doing now is considering how we can give glory to the God of heaven. First of all, we can do this by praising and glorifying or magnifying the name of God. And a little bit of a lengthy section here. I'm going to read this. First Chronicles 16, 10, and then... Um, verses 28 and 29. He says this, Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Verses 28 and 9. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Glory. Now, I I didn't spend much time on this. I think we get the idea of what glory is, but quite literally, it means weightiness or heaviness. Heaviness includes honor. All right, there's a weightiness, there's a heaviness. When uh, somebody hits a grand slam in the game four, the World Series, there's a certain weightiness. As soon as that ball was hit, everybody knew the game was over. I went and turned the television off, and I went back to work on my sermon, and I had a good illustration, okay? Uh, Everybody knew the weightiness of the moment. It, It simply comes from the word doxa, which is where we get the word doxology, 
Now, some of you, as I've been reading some of these verses in your own Bible translation, you'll say, wait a minute, my translation says, magnify, magnify the name of the Lord. Some of your translations will say that. And I, I will say there's a couple different words that are used, and, and they actually are used interchangeably, but they're the same idea. Magnify, think of a, a, a telescope for a second. Uh, in a telescope, you, you, you get the telescope and you point it up to, I don't know, let's just say Jupiter, and, and you point it to Jupiter to make it larger, at least for your own personal appearance, so you can see it. But it's not making it larger than it is, like a, a microscope. You're taking something that's really big, and, and in the telescope, you look and you see it closer as it really is. All right? When we magnify, when we glorify the name of the Lord, we're pointing other people to the Lord so that they can see him better as he is. That's what we're doing when we're magnifying or glorifying the Lord. Why would we glorify the name of God? Well, I think the idea is the idea of a reputation. I went to school in, in Salem, Oregon, and every once in a while I'd go somewhere and I had to show them my driver's license or I'd pay someone with a credit card and it would, um, it has my name on there. And they would uh, look at my name and say, oh, your dad built my house with great enthusiasm. And I would say, no, wrong Truex. That's, that's another Bobby Truex. And uh, here's the thing. I was able to receive these great excitement and delightful moments because somebody had a reputation that they had built. And that reputation was ascribed to the name Truex. And I think that the store still exists there on 131st in Portland. If you go there, you can see the Truex building. And, uh, uh, well, it, the name comes along with a reputation. If I want to honor somebody, I might write a letter or a poem. Let's just think for a second. If I wanted to honor my wife, how could I do that? I could write a song about her. I didn't write a song, honey, don't worry. Okay. <clears throat> or I could write a poem about her. And, and I, I might even make it an acronym of, of some sorts and talk about uh, something that J, O, Y, and go into all this detail. What I'm doing is I'm ascribing honor to her. I could even use the word glory. And that would be a right way to use the word glory. It's not taking away from God. It's honoring the Lord and the good things that he has done through my wife. And that ascribes weightiness, glory to what God has done. Ascribe glory to the name of God. Oh, and that theme, I should just say too, it is all throughout the Psalms. I, I did have a couple more passages. Uh, let me just read these. This is uh, Psalm uh, 29, 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavens, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Psalm 72, 19 says, 
Blessed be the glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Psalm 96 does the same thing, and there are many other passages that do the exact same thing with ascribing glory to the name of the Lord. Number two, live with purpose. Live with purpose. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, what does that mean? Why does it talk about eating and drinking, and, and how does that ascribe glory to the Lord? Well, the most mundane thing that we do in life, or at least one of them, is eating and drinking. We get up, we go and eat. We go to work, we have lunch. We drink some water or whatever it is that you drink, coffee, uh, throughout the day, and you eat and drink, and you do it without even thinking. Every once in a while, we have a great meal, uh, like Thanksgiving or Christmas, and it's, it, it has special uh, honor, for whatever reason, uh, to celebrate something, a birthday party, but eating and drinking every day. Well, we don't celebrate eating and drinking every day. It's so mundane. You know what? Even in the mundane things of life, you can give glory to the Lord every single day when you get up do you give glory to the Lord do you praise the Lord for his goodness that you were able to wake up when you eat do you pray and thank the Lord every time that you eat food or is it only at dinner time you know what when you have that bowl of oatmeal or or uh, blueberries and bananas or whatever it is that you have in your morning routine give thanks to the Lord for every bite that you take, for every drink that you swallow, it's a testimony of his goodness every single day. Even in the mundane, give glory to God. Well, let's take that idea further then. So whatever, whatever, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Husbands, you can glorify God by loving your wife and giving yourself to her, because that's what he commanded you to do. Husbands, you can glorify God by treating your wife as a precious vessel, giving her honor. That's what First Peter tells us to do. Wives, you can glorify God by respecting and submitting to your husbands. Love him, pray for him, help him with his greatest needs. Worker, you can glorify God by working hard as if you were working for God. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, when a cobbler makes a good pair of shoes, he glorifies God. Work hard at whatever it is that you do. When a baker makes good food, he glorifies God. When a web designer... Caleb, I'm looking over at you. When a web designer makes a good web page, he glorifies God. When a photographer makes good or takes good pictures and edits them and, and does some great work with her photography, she glorifies God. When a middle school student does their math and does a good science experiment or does a great essay, they glorify God. How? Glorify God in everything, as the verse says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Work as if you're working for the Lord. Children, you can glorify God by obeying and honoring your parents. 
Fathers, you can glorify God by raising up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Piano players, when you play the piano, you can glorify God by playing a great piece of music and serving us at the church. Singers, you can glorify God with your voice by lifting a joyful noise to the Lord. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Oops, and I didn't uh, show these rest of these up here. Next. I'm going to jump uh, beyond this one. Confess and repent. All right? Confess your sins and repent. In Joshua 9-7, uh, Joshua told Achan, Give glory to God and tell us what you did. And he told them what they did, and they picked up stones, and they stoned him. All right, maybe that's not the best uh, example. Revelation 16.9. It's a judgment on the people in Revelation, saying they would not repent. Yes, confession is important, but alongside of confession is repentance, turning from sin. Why? Because confession and repentance glorifies God. Pray. John 14, 13. Now, Jesus says a, a lot in John 14 through John 17 about the glory of God. And uh, I'll just uh, leave you with this verse. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. You know what? When you pray, you give God an opportunity to answer your prayers. And when He does that, you don't get the glory. God gets the glory. That is the purpose of prayer, to demonstrate our utter need and dependence upon Him. We communicate through prayer so that God gets the glory. If you want to glorify God in your life, pray. Next, purity. 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20 says this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other, every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You can glorify God by being sexually pure. Every day, with your thoughts, everything that you think of, you can glorify God. How about this? Talk about God. Psalm 24, 7-10 says this, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. You want to lift up God? Talk about Him. Sing about Him. Tell people about Him. When you show up at work tomorrow, tell them of the good things that God has done in your life so that they might see and hear what you say, see your good works, and glorify God. Uh, one of the things I loved about uh, Tim Tebow 
I uh, remember uh, it was a number of years ago, and he, every game, there was this pivotal moment in the game, and, and he came through like five games in a row. It was the last play of the game, and he did something miraculous, it seemed like, and the, the, the Broncos won. Yay! Not Denver Broncos, but hey, uh, all right, so what he would do after the game, he would go out, and the, the, the reporter, just in a ex- moment of excitement, says, Tim, tell us about that last play. What was the first thing he did every time he had an interview? First of all, I want to give glory to God. And you know what? By simply saying that giving glory to the name of the Lord, he ascribed glory to the name of the Lord, and everybody heard what he said. And it was glorious. The Lord received all the glory. And Tim Tebow was like the moon. He was just reflecting the glory of God. last one, enjoy God. Enjoy God. Did you know that God wants you to enjoy him and his glory? Philippians 4.4 says, rejoice in the Lord sometimes. Is that what it says? Thank you for the laughs. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice The way you give glory to the Lord is by enjoying Him. You enjoy God. You enjoy who He is and what He has done. Do you tell Him? Do you sing? Do you make a joyful noise to the Lord? Enjoy the Lord. Psalm 66.1 says, Shout for joy to God. When was the last time you gave a good shout to the Lord? Psalm 66 commands us to do it. Shout for joy to God. All the earth, sing for the glory of his name, give, give to him glorious praise. Psalm 105, 1-3 says this, O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of his wondrous work, glory in his holy name, and let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Friends at Montana Avenue Baptist Church, let's give glory to God by enjoying Him. When we do these things as a church and as individuals, we come alongside of Paul in Romans 11, 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To God be glory forever. Amen. Together, let's glorify the Father. Together, let's glorify the Son. Together, let's glorify the Spirit. Father, thank you for meeting us here today. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for ascribing glory to yourself. And Lord, thank you for using us to give glory to your great name. Help us to live that out every moment, every day, not for our sakes, but for your glory. And when men see us, And the good works that we do, may they give glory to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.